A lot of people say my name, uh, Mammer, so that I'm Mamer, which is, I believe it's a town in Luxembourg. Well, I guess in the original German, it, it's Promuta, and it's, is yours German as well? Uh, well, Luxembourgian, so I, ah. I guess, yeah. I, yeah. I always thought maybe it was like French, like Mamer, like my sea or something like that. And That's more romantic. I would go with that. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I have a whole theory about like, because Luxembourg is a fairly landlocked country, and, uh, and, uh, but there's like a Mamer River. So I just imagined this French sailor who fell in love with this Luxembourgian, you know, woman. Mermaid? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I heard, the mermaid story. Yeah. I would stick with that one too. Okay, there you go. Okay. All right. But he just decided this river is going to be called Mamer, my sea, or something like that. All right. And uh, so you are a professor and, and uh, dean of the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University, right? Yes, sir. Okay, and uh, and you you uh, you're you're an author, and you, you write a lot of books about like mass communications, um, um, sort of uh, sort of kind of the intersection of like images and history and politics is. Yeah, I'm sort of at the intersection of visual communication and political communication. I, in the last couple of years, I've written a lot about new and emerging forms of media, social media texting, obviously the internet, everything there. Um, wrote a book in 2008 called Blog Wars about the rise of political blogs and sort of social media and, and politics. Had, a, had an appearance on The Daily Show. That was my, I guess, my six minutes of, of fame to talk about that with, with Jon Stewart. Most of my previous work had been looking at the politics of images in general and specifically famous images, photo icons, the, the images that people talk about often in relation to famous events, flag raising at Iwo Jima, man standing against the tanks near Tiananmen, uh, Saigon execution 1968, the, the, the list of famous photojournalistic images. Right, yeah. And uh, you know, I'm, as, a, as a Canadian, I'm actually, we're actually blacked out from uh, being able to go through like the Daily Show archive. So I was not ever able to kind of catch your uh, your appearance on the Daily Show. As I say, of the 286 reasons why being a Canadian sucks, that's reason four, you know, that's reason 412. That's reason 42, uh, not being able to access the uh, Comedy Central database being blacked out. But uh, if you actually search on, uh, you know, YouTube is always sometimes your stealth source. So I was kind of searching on that and I discovered a lot of uh you've got at least two or three kind of talks up on on youtube and uh and i would encourage people to uh to, to see some of your uh, your talks in there just, just absolutely fascinating stuff i mean um you know like like you know obviously you're a dean so you better know your stuff cold but you i mean you know your stuff cold but uh uh you know you, you you've got a great way of presenting it and talking and, and it's really it's really fascinating stuff but uh but i do have to caution people there's there's another dr david perlmutter oh yeah. yeah yeah yes. uh, this is actually pretty funny because you know i'm on the board of the skeptoid podcast ah okay so i tuned so brian i know brian dunning i've met him a number of times and a couple of podcasts ago, he was he had a, an, and I haven't talked to him about this, but he had 
one on PBS pledge drives where they have sort of people selling books, you know, the Deepak Chopra type stuff. Right, yeah. And he yeah. mentioned and buying books from David Perlmutter. Yes. Now, David Perlmutter is a, he, he's a, I believe he's a neurosurgeon, but he's written a couple of books or, or at least a famous book about the grain brain, about basically wheat is bad, right? Mm-hmm. Right, uh, yeah. Um, Gluten free, so to speak. And I, I really don't know anything about it, but but I do get confused with him sometimes. He he's a he's a younger, handsomer man, so I guess I don't mind that point. He's he's fabulously wealthy, I assume, because I mean I see him on TV all the time, and his books seem to be very popular. Uh, and I, I can't judge the science, but I do get confused, and 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 I eat bread, so uh, <laughs> I wonder sometimes I'm at a restaurant and the waiter sees David. There's David Perlmutter over there. And he's having half a loaf of bread. I mean, my God, what? So I, I don't know whether I'm hurting his career or not. I don't think so. I've never met the gentleman or, or talked to him, but there is some confusion because it's an unusual name. Like uh, Carl Mamer, I would, you know, I, I'm, there can't be that many. It's I'm pretty much Canada. it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, I mean, this other Dr. David Perlmutter, I mean, you should just get him to pay you not to eat out in public, you know, because, uh, or at least not, not use an Amex card or something to pay for your restaurant. He, he should just cover you all the time, your restaurant bills or something, and... So as, as not to sort of confuse people. But yeah, I, I, I can't, yeah, ex- like you, I can't really sort of, I, I, I didn't really delve into it because I just, I don't have the time to waste on something like that. But it, 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 all these red flags immediately pop up about this guy. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know what, I, probably woo, you know. And again, I, I, I like to think of myself as a scientist, so I simply never comment on something I haven't personally investigated. But, you know, growing up, uh, which sort of a lead into what I've st- studied for half my career. I heard, I, I believe it was maybe my f- freshman year in high school, I had a very, very good science professor who taught a geology class. And he was the first person to say something that's attributed to Carl Sagan. But I think most scientists tell their classes at some point, which is if you're going to make an extraordinary claim, you should provide really, really good evidence, extraordinary evidence of that claim. It's not enough to just say what's in this vial will cure cancer or I was abducted by UFOs last night and just expect people to go, OK, great. Thank you. That, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm going to call Norway right now to line up that Nobel Prize, you know, or the interview with the president to brief him about the, the aliens that you really have to provide something. Yes, exactly. Tangible, that's within the world of science. Because I think, as we all know, there's this discordance that sometimes people who believe in paranormal phenomena uh, outside the realm of science phenomena will, on the one hand, they'll take on the attributes and even some of the equipment that looks sort of science-y, like, you know, the e-meters or... or, um, um, What do those ghost hunters have? Something like, you know, resonance spectrometers or something like that which which sort of looks like what a scientist would do but it it doesn't actually measure anything it's not like you know okay 12 ghosts detected instead of 13 ghosts detected yes right yes but then often when they're challenged by scientists they will say oh well you know this can't be measured by western science or normal science and so uh, as somebody who likes to think of himself as a scientist which means that I'm deeply flawed because I think all scientists admit that the scientific method is has issues. <laughs> it's a problem to be told, no, 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 I'm not subject to scientific verification. Just move on, ignore me, and let me sell my books. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
or it's like you know frequently you'll like well, who is the um um St- stanton friedman or he, he published a book like the science of ufos and uh and you know there was no science in there like he used sciencey words but i mean to me science is basically hypothesis testing right and and you know he just sort of uses sciencey words and and then hey and that's and that's a book you know but uh but you know you actually i'm just uh, on the hypothesis testing i mean one of the things i was sort of impressed by about one of your videos where um um, you had a professor or something that said, oh, you know, well, this image kind of, you know, stopped a war or this image sort of galvanized the American public against the Viet- Vietnam War. And then you're kind of like, well, that's a claim. <laughs> Let's test that claim. And, and you, you sort of found out that that wasn't quite accurate. I, I don't know. But I, I don't want to sort of, we, we want to kind of yeah. get into your, your actual conspiracy topic. But uh, can you touch on that briefly? That was a really sort of fascinating point. I don't know, Brian. I'm sorry. I don't know, Carl. I've been listening. I'm saying Brian Dunny. I I've been listening to your podcast a long time. Don't you have like witty banter for about 12 minutes before you get to the actual topic? I mean, what what am I like? Chop liver? You not gonna have witty banter? I was listening to your your episode on um, Roanoke, which was really fascinating. The gentleman who had done uh, Korea had done research on Roanoke. Right, yeah, you, yeah. you had at least 20 minutes of witty banter before you got to the point. So yeah, I just, yeah, you know. I know. <laughs> it's like it's like it's the uh, I, I have to say that 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 poor fellow actually died a couple of years ago. Um, oh but, no. Yeah, I know. I know. It was really sad. He just kind of was like just one day was like. I don't really the, the, feel... the gentleman who did the Roanoke show? Yeah, yeah, yeah I really And he'd done another show. Well, that that's terrible. So I'll, yeah. I'll uh, well, anyway, I'm happy to dive into it. I, I actually, like a lot of people, I do have some memories from high school that, that are are good, besides the bullying part. <laughs> yeah. And one of them was that this, this geology teacher was talking about extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Okay, great. Well, coincidentally, there was another high school class where we were uh, it was American history 101 and I and I don't know about the Canadian system but I actually I did my master's thesis about history textbooks in American high schools because mm-hmm. I was very interested in the visual portrayal of history what pictures are picked to portray World War II or the depression or the civil rights movement mm-hmm. because as you know and again I don't know about the Canadian system in the American system it's very political yeah. a lot of groups that lobby you know we need more pictures of albanians we need you know fewer we don't want pictures that show this or show that and so the people that write the text of of history textbooks often have no selection rights or have no role in the selection of images that's mm-hmm. more driven by uh, the making the book look snappy but also towards what fits the a political agenda so I was taking this American history class, and I remember reading in a textbook, uh, it showed a picture, which we call shorthand Saigon Execution, which mm-hmm. is 1968 during the Tet Offensive. Uh, general Nguyen Ngoc Won, who is a police general in the South Vietnamese Army with a pistol, with a small pistol, is executing somebody who was described as a Viet Cong suspect. Later it came out, yes, they were a Viet Cong commander on the streets of Saigon, during all the the chaos of the street fighting that was going on during the Tet Offensive in mm-hmm. Saigon, and that that was an interest. Obviously, it's a fascinating picture, and as you may know, it was also it was like a lot of photo icons. There was it was shot from multiple venues and and modalities. So, for example, there was a Japanese film crew that filmed it, and uh, it was also shown on the TV news in America. Uh, 
the Huntley Brinkley report, which was one of the major news shows, showed a film of it uh, to 20 million people the, the next uh, uh, evening. So the, the, the film and the picture are both very famous. And specifically, the high school, the textbook said this picture shocked America and changed America's opinion of the war or led to America withdrawing its forces from direct engagement in the Vietnam War. And I remember, and again, I, I don't recall exactly when I saw this somewhere in my freshman year, but I remember linking the two, linking the geology teacher saying extraordinary claim, extraordinary evidence, and this textbook telling me, and I was thinking like, wow, I guess that is a pretty extraordinary claim to say that a picture changed 240 plus million people's view of something. Mm -hmm changed the course of foreign policy, of war, of Congress, of a president, that's powerful effect. I mean, to, in the world of political effects, that's curing cancer in terms of effects, right? right yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I sort of filed that away, and I've, all, I've always have been interested in images. I mean, I, I, I did a book where I, I'm a, I like to call myself a photographer, but basically I've only done one big photo project where I followed the police department for two years and took pictures and sort of wrote about the lives of police officers in relation to mass media through the pictures that I took. But so I've always been interested in pictures, but it was not until late in my college years and then going into my master's thesis and my dissertation that I really started to look at this as a scientist and say, okay, I want to go back to that claim and I want to look at it. I want to investigate it and assess what evidence do we have that that claim or a lot of other kinds of claims about famous photo icons are true or not. Mm -hmm. And that's where I sort of began my now 25 year journey in this. Now, I, I, obviously your show is the conspiracy skeptic, so I'm gonna apologize because I'm not sure that this is a conspiracy in the traditional sense of like an accusation that there's a cabal out there, you know, secret manipulating. But if you're, a little liberal, and since you're a Canadian, you mm -hmm. must be liberal, right? Because <laughs> yes. I, I live in West Texas here, so you know, I'm a little different part of the, the world. Um, it is an assumption that something is true, and that there's a consensus that something is true. But but I sometimes I feel like I'm the conspiracy theorist because I'm the one saying the opposite of what I read in so many books and I see repeated in documentaries. Because I'll sit there and I'll read, and you know I'm, I'm happy to go through this step by step, and sure. I've written a lot about this. And I, I make a case, and I'm happy to make it here, that no, actually there's no evidence, I mean none, that this picture shocked the nation and changed America's view about the war. And by the way, as a scientist, I want to be very clear. I'm saying there's no evidence for it. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily saying it didn't happen, but right. I'm just saying... Yeah, again, there's no extraordinary evidence to prove this is the case, or even even direct directly or, or indirectly. So sometimes I'm sitting there reading, watching TV, a documentary, or reading a book, and I'll come across that sentence, and I'll go, "Gee, you know, I spent three years pretty much making a strong case that's probably not true." And so what do I do? Do I like like write the guy who wrote the book and say, "You know, I really think that's not true." Right. Right. <laughs> So I feel like maybe 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 you've got a 
you know, throw me off your show because I'm sort of in the, a different position than most of your guests, where most of your guests are saying, well, these theorists, are, the conspiracy theorists, are saying this wild fringe belief. But however, the consensus of historians or the right, consensus yes, yeah. of scientists is over here. Well, I guess I'm the, the wild, crazy guy in the corner. So you, you want to kick me off right now? I understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, what, what you say, I, I, you know, is something probably a, a, something I've talked before in my show. I call it the uh, sort of the, the, the narrative fallacy. Like when we kind of look at a period of history, we 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 just have this really pat narrative like and, and it's almost like, you know, like like World War Two, you know, like we had these these great leaders who saw, you know, farther than everybody else and they had their hands steady on the you know on the you know on the the, the lever and 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 they, of course they did this and then they did that and then they could see this was going to happen so they did that and 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 you know but a lot of times when we actually sort of delve into that narrative we discover no that's probably not how it actually happened right like so 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 yeah that's that you're not conspiracy mongering for sure you're just you're just i, I think sort of you know pointing out you know what, what i call the sort of narrative fallacy yes i agree and, and i've heard a number of your guests and you make some really good points that are not specific to any particular conspiracy theory i mean just let's take what you're saying here i i'm the dean of uh, a college at texas tech university and we have about 1,600 students in our college, and we have about 91 full-time employees, and I'm responsible. I mean, I'm the, the, the chief academic officer. Um, I try very hard, you know, like anybody who, who wants to try to do a good job, to have some level of control of, you know, of trying to make time to work with the faculty and make sure that we have the best possible classes and we schedule them available for students. And we have a lot of metrics of success in our business, and I think we're doing very well. But I never kid myself, even in an organization that's this small, that's really just in one, one, two buildings, we take up two buildings at Tech, mm -hmm. uh, that I have absolute, you know, spider-like control <laughs> over everything and everyone, and that everything that happens in every class is part of a master plan, you know, that I or people get together. One of the things you learn when you run an organization, and you know, I have to say, I wonder how many conspiracy theorists have been managers, because if you're a manager, <laughs> yes. you realize how little control you have over several things. First, stuff just happens. Yeah. You know, there's a fire alarm, the, the water main bursts, you know, a student has a meltdown in the class. And, and, you know, there's nothing you can do to prevent those random occurrences. And often even the best laid plans of what to do. You still don't do them. I am. Uh, uh, both my parents had PhDs in psychology, and they ended up in, in different areas of academia. But they were psychologists, and they both met in a mental institution, <laughs> which some people might say explains a lot uh, about me. Uh, but my mother uh, told me something really interesting once, and I, I, I never, you know, she. I was a teenager, so I didn't listen to anything my mother said at the time. But I wish I had followed up with her. <laughs> she made the comment that whenever there was a, an emergency or some some unforeseen event at the mental institution, <laughs> the only people who knew who were kept calm and control and knew exactly what to do were the clinical paranoids, <laughs> because they were expecting it. And so, you know, when a fire broke out, they knew, you know, the alien invasion was nigh and they, they had a plan, you know, 
and they would be the ones, okay, everybody come out this door, you know, and all the doctors would be following them. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know that she was having some fun with me or something like that, but but uh, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. And then uh, one of your guests, a gentleman who was talking, he, he'd done a, a, a documentary film about conspiracy theorists and I believe the Kennedy assassination. And, and you and him had a great interchange where he, he, both of you made this point. And I think you were using, was using George Bush and his, uh, the second as an, as an example is that it's not like cartoon universes on movies or in car comic books where the evil villain has this group of minions who right, yeah. are stupidly loyal to death and will do anything. Right, you know, yeah. I mean, but I've actually, uh, we, we've got a wonderful professor here who, who's written, uh, co-edited the book about the Joker, and I was talking to him about this this day, about minions. Mm -hmm. Apparently nobody's wrote, written a book about minions, so I'd like to do a, my next book to be about minions, is that in the minions, the henchmen in for the Joker or any of these arch-villains, first, it's, it's not clear what they get out of it. Like, like you know, they, they're loyal to the Joker, but like, what, what, what is their medical plan? You know, what is their dental <laughs> plan? You know, what is their, I mean, do they get really good insurance? And like, what is their pay for yeah. being, and then they're loyal to the ridiculous point. Like, you know, hey, you two minions, go jump out of a plane. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I'm very happy here in my job, but there is not a single person here who would commit murder for me, who would jump out of a plane for me, who would hurt a child for me. I mean, nobody is that loyal. I mean, maybe a few crazy people out there are that loyal in an army, you know, an organized army in the midst of battle. But even there, not all orders will be instantly followed. You know, I mean, if you tell your platoon, okay, everybody, you run out there and die, go, I'll mm -hmm. be waiting here for you. Most armies, people would go like, what, you know? Yeah. And so the idea that a president of the United States has inculcated 500 people in the CIA to keep a secret mm -hmm. to their death, a secret which has killed millions of people, you know, and they all keep it yeah. and never tell anybody and all get together to, to plan it even further. I, I submit as a, as a manager, it just does it, it's not possible. For people to act that way, exactly. Or as as my guest pointed out, that you 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 don't get people to act like that for you right away. It takes years. You you get them just to be simple thugs first, you know, and then you you sort of bring them along. And that that's even that's even to say say somebody like Hitler even had this master plan. I mean, we're we're almost falling to it ourselves here. That you know that it just it's just one thing happens after the other. It, it it's all like like I mean. It's almost like sort of Donald Trump, you know, it's like so he's just getting people at rallies to kind of beat people up, you know, and then it's like, oh, you know, what what's the next thing, you know, and and and, you know, it, it may not never go beyond, you know, you know, there's just some thugs in, in the audience. But, you know, but you also have to be worried about that, you know, that is he going to. Well, I, I guess I'm, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not as worried as about uh, you are because I just see that the special circumstances that created Nazi Germany and the special yes. circumstances that created Stalinist Russia and Maoist China and, and the Khmer Rouge, and, and it, they really were special and sustained. Again, as you're saying, as your guest said, you can't just flip a switch mm -hmm. and 100 – normal people who are postal bureaucrats will say yes sir uh, who do i kill for you you know exactly yeah i mean uh, the thing that as you're saying like you know sort of maoist china and stalin and hitler is that you know is that 
we we all have jobs to go to the next day. We have mortgages to pay. We have you know children in school and 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 you know and when I mean if you strip those conditions away, yeah, who knows what's going to happen? Which which way we're all, you know who we're going to sort of follow and and what we're whose bidding we're going to do? But you know yeah, it's we got a long way to go before we got to get worried. I think the path for Canada to become a uh, totalitarian dictatorship is going to be a pretty long one. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just don't I mean, so the people that say that, you know, we're just hours away from uh, the government rounding everybody up. Again, I just I, I don't see how that would work, because in the places where people, the government has rounded people up, there's been a long lead time of propaganda and brutalization. And we just we don't see the signs of it in the West yet. Yeah, I think. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just so but your your actual topic, did you, you want to you want to jump into your. Oh, yeah. Energy? We okay. have witty banter. So okay. now we can have the topic. 26 right? minutes up. OK. Yeah, All right. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, so you're, you're... Well, well, we, you know, we we didn't talk about puffins, though. You had mentioned you wanted to talk about puffins. Oh yeah, my, my whole I got I, I, one day. Maybe maybe my April first show I will do uh, my my, okay. my my whole puffin puff, skeptic, but puffin right. conspiracy. Yeah. That's but right. I'll, yeah, I'll... So so I started studying. I just I be, I'm just basically fascinated with pictures, and so undergraduate masters. My masters, as I said, was on high school pictures in high school history textbooks and who picked them and why they were there and why this picture was picked and, and not another. And then going into my, my dissertation and, and now I guess I've written about, I've written or edited about 10 books and I'd say half of them have been on this topic of the powers of pictures. And in brief, what, what I, let's take Saigon execution 1968. Okay. Right. So, so as I said, now the first thing that I noticed when I started looking at powerful pictures was that just like science would say, you have to be precise in your language, hmm. right? So I would find, and I compiled a whole list of quotes, and I have that in one of my books of all the quotes where people say, this was the picture that changed America's mind about the war, this was the picture that shocked the nation. And so I would, uh, and I'll quote one, this is general, and, and th these are not quotes by like obscure, you know, professor. This, these are, okay, here's William Westmoreland, right, yes. commander of Allied forces. The big in, cheese. Yeah, yeah, the commander that day in, 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 in Saigon. The Saigon execution photograph in the film shocked the world, an isolated incident of cruelty in a broadly cruel war, but a psychological blow against the South Vietnamese nonetheless. And that's one of the, the uh, you know, lesser ones that, uh, in America in our time by Jeffrey Hodgson. The Saigon execution footage was arguably the turning point of the war, for it coincided with a dramatic shift in American public opinion and may very well have helped to cause it. So I, I found a lot of these quotes. And what's interesting is that I, I call it the incredible disappearing footnote is I would see a quote like that. I would see I would see a claim like that and I would look for the reference. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you, where, where's the OK, the, the, the footnote or the end note. And let's just say, you know, 37, chapter 4, 37 is that quote. And then I'd flip through the book and it would say, uh, so, so Mr. J Mr. Tom Jones, you know, Mr. Carl Mamer would write a book and say, this was the picture that changed America's mind about the war. 
and he'd have a sentence in like that, and he'd have footnote 37. I go to footnote 37. It turns out Mr. Brian Dunning had write a book three years before, and he was quoting Mr. Brian Dunning. So I go to Brian Dunning, and I would keep going back in time trying to find somebody who had done a public opinion survey, mm-hmm. somebody who'd done something that approaches what we do in science, in polling, the art and science of polling, when we're trying to understand public opinion. And I find nobody ever did it. So I had to go back in time, and t- because I, obviously I couldn't get in the time machine. That's a separate conspiracy. <laughs> you know, you've never had a time traveler conspiracy show, have you? No, well, one day. One day, okay. So I would can't go back in time, but you can ask some inferential, uh, indirect questions about something like public opinion. So, for example, I looked at and the Vietnam War was one of the first truly heavily polled wars. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of survey data from the Vietnam War about the Americans attitudes towards the Vietnam War. And so the first conclusion I had was that. Nobody apparently has compiled this extraordinary evidence that this picture changed the war. So that's number one. Okay. So first, apparently nobody else has written a book like, and here's my 50 pieces of evidence that this happened. Everybody just assumes it happened and states it and thinks by stating it, it must be so. Mm-hmm. But then I, I said, well, let's, let's start out with the public opinion data. And, you know, we've, there's been a lot of really good public opinions surveys and then research about surveys in wartime. And and one of the truisms that I don't think is as true now as it was 20 years ago, but since World War II, there's been an assumption that the American support for a war, by American, by the way, I apologize, I do mean USA. I'm one of those Americans that keeps saying, you know, I I don't know. Are you one of those Canadians that resents it when we say America and don't mean you? No, no, because it's like it's like. Well, I mean, how are you going to shorten down the United States of America, right? <laughs> you know? well, so one of the things we know is that one of the best predictors of American public opinion support for a war that America is involved in is the casualty rate of Americans. And in fact, in Vietnam, it was almost creepy how accurate that was of how the more American soldiers were killed the fewer people supported the war. Mm-hmm. But I want to explain, because again, you, you know, you, you said very, very astutely earlier about the simple narrative. What is the simple narrative of the Vietnam War in the United States today? Well, there was a war in Vietnam, and the South Vietnamese side was not doing well at all and couldn't fight for itself. America intervened. It couldn't, it couldn't defeat the Viet Cong. It couldn't defeat Nor- North Vietnamese. The, the American public started getting restive and there were protests and protests and protests and finally we withdrew because we gave up and that south vietnam was overrun and now there's one country of vietnam but the problem is that let's take something very simple as like opposition to war if you ask people in 1968 who were in the category which was still a minority of are you opposed to the war you would find people opposed the war, and even that is a problematic word, for many different reasons that didn't necessarily put them in the same political camp. For example, you would find conservatives who were opposed to Lyndon Johnson's failing war. Mm-hmm. And they, you'd, you'd ask them, well, what do you oppose? They say, we should be fighting harder. 
we should be we should be doing like we did in WW2. We should be bombing North Korea, Vietnam into the Stone Age like we did with Nazi Germany and Japan. We're fighting a pussyfoot war with two hands tied behind our back. That was the there was so that's very key. There was a conservative opposition to the war, saying it's being badly fought. It's being fought with the politicians in Washington. And by the way, that was a consensus in the military. Uh, there's a famous poll I, I have in my book. 19, I think it was 1982, the Veterans Administration did a survey of, Viet, of heavy combat Vietnam veterans, mm -hmm. and saying, "Would you, you know, if you had it all over again, would you have fought in Vietnam?" And the answer was yes, but only if they'd been allowed to fight unlimited war like mm -hmm. we did in World War II. So, so the idea that the only people who were opposed to the war were the hippies in the streets was simply factually correct. Then if you looked at the polling data, the reasons people gave for opposition, American casualties, right, the right. cost of the war, the, the expense of the war, the distraction of the war from so many other things America was trying to do, the length of the war, the length of the war. Uh, George Marshall, famous uh, uh, war leader during World War II, made the comment that democracies can't fight seven years wars. <laughs> Dictatorships can just drag out a war for a long time before collapsing. But democracies, people just get tired and right. they get angry. And, you know, even World War II. I mean, we think of World War II as like everybody was on board, you know, cheering victory all the time. But World War II, there's a lot of evidence that there was a fatigue by 1945 in mm -hmm. the United States. I know by Canada where people were going like and remember, that was a war where a family in Toronto or a family in London or a family in, in Lubbock, Texas, and almost every Amer USA family had this, they had a, especially if they had a son in, in the military, is they had a map on their wall with little pins. Right. And they could listen to the radio and they'd say, American forces ha now have control of Iwo Jima. And they'd go to the map of the Pacific and they probably wouldn't find anything, but they'd get the coordinates and they'd pull a little pin, we got Iwo Jima. Right. Okay. And likewise, when we started fighting in mainland Europe, they'd say, oh, Paris has fallen, right? right? So there were, you could visibly see progress. In Vietnam, the, the military would announce, we have retaken the village of Dang Bac, <laughs> yeah. which we lost last night, which we had regained on Thursday, which we had lost last Tuesday. Right, you know, yeah. so we were just holding on to what we had. That's not morale building to say, you know, we're, we're, we're holding on to what we have. Yeah. And they, they would frequently just then abandon it because they realized that eh, we don't even we didn't even need it. That's right. So there was, so so there there were people who listed their reason for opposing the war. Interestingly, and this leads to my understanding of, of Saigon execution at the bottom of reasons of opposition to the war was the cost of the war in deaths to the Vietnamese. Right, right. And this is not a slur on America, on the United States. It is a natural human function to care about your people more than other people. Yeah, exactly. the, the yeah. People in Turkey care about casualties to the Turkish army less than they care about casualties to the Syrian army. Exactly. Well, it, it, it's like the, you know, the terrorist attack in, in Belgium, right? It's like no Canadians hurt. 
Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> yeah. And here in Lubbock, we had four Lubbock students on a study abroad unhurt. That was our headline. Yes, yes, exactly. For, for that. And, and, and it's perfectly logical. It's not some people. I, I don't like it when people say, oh, it, you know, you don't care about the lives. of No, it's normal that Indians care more about Indians. And that's going to be the headline news yeah, of, exactly. you know, Indians hurt or, 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 or not. So that, now that's now the puzzles pieces begin. So so when I looked at the polling data, I saw a couple of things. First, there's no evidence that there was a huge drop-off in support of the Vietnam War after this picture was shown. Now, was this a famous picture? Absolutely. This picture appeared thousands of newspapers and magazines. And again, on the evening news, Huntley Brinkley report, 20 million people. So if you lived in the United States of America or the world, there was a good chance if you paid attention to the news, you would have seen the Saigon execution. Okay. So... But there was not like the Saigon picture appeared on Thursday and, wow, American public opinion dropped on Friday. There was none of that. In fact, public opinion in support of the war effort went up slightly during Tet Offensive. Now, this ties into another thing we know about public opinion. It's called the rally around the flag effect. Mm -hmm. People don't like to stick it to the government in the middle of a crisis, especially to the army. Okay. So it's actually unlikely that there'll be a collapse in public opinion because of one set of pictures, because it's going to be in the middle of a crisis, and it's probably the drop is going to happen later. Okay, so so we know this general trend about what governs public opinion in wartime. Now I mentioned in that case uh, that okay we've public opinion polls, but how else can we tell? whether people were affected by something back in time where you weren't taking a specific survey on the topic. Well, there were projects in the United States that dealt with oral histories where they had people write diaries about their news watching and what they paid attention to the news. And I, I looked into them. Wow. And, uh, you know, I looked at those dates and people uh, occasionally mentioned seeing this picture, but most people were worried were, were Concerned about March Madness. You know what March <laughs> Madness is, Carl? I, I've, I've got I've got a bracket. It's a game called basketball. Yes, I've got I've got a bracket. The okay, uh, right. UNC yeah. I think is my is my my, my choice for the winner. There you go. Never won by a Canadian team, I believe. <laughs> uh, so the, the the point is that that okay, well that didn't pan out there. That didn't. There was no evidence of like, oh my God, look at this terrible picture. I will now change my mind about the war. And then, well, luckily, some profess, a group, group, a couple of professors had actually done a study in the 70s where they went into the archive of letters. Now, remember, before blogs, before the, you're a younger guy, but remember before the Internet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, if you were angry about something and wanted to express your opinion to the news, what did you do? You wrote a letter to the editor. Darn you wrote right. A letter to the news. Right. Yeah. And so these professors, God bless them, they went through the archive of the news, the evening news of the show and looked at the letters people had written about the film, which showed the execution. And what they found was hardly anybody talked about the politics. The biggest complaint was I was eating my dinner and I have to watch somebody's head being blown off. Come on, (laughs) you know, stop it. That, again, doesn't show. I mean, that there was this. Massive. So I, I kept building evidence of lack of evidence. And I understand lack of evidence doesn't mean there's no evidence. But I, I, I think I've made the case 
that nobody has provided this extraordinary evidence. Now, then, then I have to ask, I think, a reasonable question, which is, okay, so I'm saying this picture appeared and it had no effect. Well, what I tell my students is that my research really has sort of one big premise, and that is, you've heard, I'm sure, even in Canada, you've heard, seeing is believing, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I say believing is seen, that we have a lot of research in social cognition and social psychology that people, the human, the human brain is remarkably stubborn. Right. Once we've made up our mind about something, and once we think it's really important, it's very hard to change our mind. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to, to take feedback that fits. We tend to take information and reincorporate it into our pre-existing beliefs. So if you're a big Donald Trump fan and you see a fight break out at a Trump rally, well, that is evidence of, of you know, the, the bad people who are conspiring against Trump. If right. you're anti-Trump, that's evidence of the violent fascism of, of, of Trump. You know, everything is reincorporated into our, our belief system. So I, I mentioned to you that when these pictures appeared, whether in film or in a photograph, they were described as, in the caption, as the execution of a Viet Cong suspect. Mm -hmm. And I said that actually it was proven, and if, if actually if you travel to uh, Vietnam, that picture is in a, a museum there, and they, they identify that person as a, a commander in the Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. General Lone, after he, he, took, he took the shot, turned to the photographers and others who were there, including the photographer Eddie Adams, who had the famous still shot, and said, and there's some different variations of what he said, and, and, and I don't think anybody you know, had a you know, tape recorder exactly getting the exact words, but he said, uh, this man killed family of my friend, killed my friends, you know, mm -hmm. I hope you understand. Buddha will understand and right. walked away. I mean, right. there are variations of that. And I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm sort of giving an amalgam of the different ones. That's not an exact exact. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is, yeah, I mean, the, the Tet Offensive was an, uh, an uprising, a planned uprising of Viet Cong guerrillas all over Vietnam. And their target was mainly the infrastructure of the South Vietnamese government, and that included the families of South Vietnamese officers. So there were there were massacres of quite a number of families of South Vietnamese government officials and officers. And then, because these were very clever people, the Viet Cong, they also went after the symbols of American power. So for example, a sapper team broke into the US embassy complex. Technically, they never penetrated the embassy, but you know we did not have the brightest bulbs in charge of our war effort there in terms of, of uh, public relations. Uh, and so the army, the U.S. Army, invited reporters to see, aha, we've killed all these Vietnamese guerrillas. And what photograph was shown? The Great Seal of the United States cracked lying on the ground. So <laughs> uh, the general saying, hey, they never penetrated the embassy compact, but man, they got in, didn't they? Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, you made a really interesting point uh, in one of your talks that um, you know, a lot of these sort of you know, images and films and even videos we have of atrocities are actually recorded by the people committing them. And then they don't think and, and they're proud of them. Right. Yes. And that is a very 
uh, difficult point to accept is that because believing is seen, that means that whoever whoever is watching the image creates their own reality, not the other way around. And so, yeah, I mean, you, if you think, for example, the Holocaust, the pictures that are sort of the icons of the Holocaust, you think about the little boy raising his hand, surrendering to German troops, being filed away in the Warsaw Ghetto, things like that. Uh, these pictures were taken by photographers for the German army. Uh, I mean, the, um, the, the SS general who crushed the uh, Jewish Warsaw ghetto uprising published a book, a commemorative book, a coffee table book. Yeah. I mean, he took time out from the Russians, you know, crushing Germany to, to publish a coffee table book. Uh, people would take tourism like souvenir snaps. Um, one of my most enjoyable, um, I guess I, I'm, it's pretty strange what I find enjoyable, but I spent uh, three months at the Bunz Archive in Koblenz, West Germany. At the end of the war, a lot of the photographs of the Waffen-SS, which was the military wing of the SS, disappeared. But there were several trucks of them which were captured, and that's what's in this Bunz archive. So I find fascinating flipping through these archives of photographs taken by German or ordinary German soldiers who just like took a picture. And uh, I call them the tourists of destruction because you would see that – I mean, remember back then before digital film, you would see all 36 you know, frames, right? Mm -hmm right in front of you on the negative, and you'd see like negative one through 12 was quaint Polish village where they'd be posing next to the church, posing next to the synagogue, posing next to some interestingly dressed foreigners. I mean, the same pictures you and, and your partner might take if you trip a trip to a rural Poland today, right? Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the frames would then be them killing everyone and burning the village down. Oh, yeah. But, but, you know, they were all souvenir snaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's disgusting, but it but it's 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 humanity. So they did not see these pictures. I mean, in, in, if you go to Cambodia, for example, there's the famous archive of the photo registry of all the people that were were about to be killed mm -hmm. by the Khmer Rouge, and uh, there's actually a fascinating story of the um, the photographer who that that was his job, you know, take That's pictures true. of people about to be uh, executed, and you know, good lighting there, guy, you know. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so there is this issue that people sort of assume, and, and I, I think I get into arguments with people sometimes about this, especially my fellow uh, people who love visual culture and visual images, and they'll say, well, yeah, but how could anybody not look at this image and cry? How could anybody not look at this image and be shocked? And I go, yeah, lots of people, because they're the people on the other side who say, yeah, those dead people in the image, they deserved it. Yeah. Glad to see them dead. And so that's my conclusion about the Viet Cong suspect image about why there's actually not even that there's very little evidence that it changed America's mind about the war but actually if you think about it why would it because the person being killed was a Viet Cong suspect he was a guy who was killing Americans mm -hmm. so you're telling me the American public in 1968 was going to go oh my gosh I'm going to cry bitter tears for an American killer being killed. Yeah, yeah. That didn't. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't. That's not the way public opinion. That's not the way belief systems. That's not the way cognitive processing works. Your um, your your disappearing footnote 
Uh, I, I love that. I love that 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 that, that term actually. But um, if you, uh, I, I mean, that, that's something sort of skeptics sort of encounter a lot. Or or if if they're doing their if they're being good skeptics, they should be encountering a lot. That that when you start to, you know, when you start to sort of trace, you know, um, a, a certain footnote like. The, what I was just gobsmacked by was the, uh, you know, for the anti-fluoride people that, you know, anti-fluoride people always quote like, well, you know, the Germans used fluoride to, uh, you know, pacify their, uh, the people in the concentration camps. And when you begin to look, okay, well, that's quoted. And then that comes from another page. And, because, and once you get right to the bottom of it, it's just like, it's like some guy just told another guy at the end of World War II just said that. Yeah, you know, I th I think the Germans were just using fluoride to, uh, you know, in in the concentration camps to pacify people. Like that, and that was the the source of the quote. It wasn't like there was like you know these Nazi documents and these Nazi scientists had done all this research and that's what they're doing. It was just no, it was just one guy just sort of off the cuff mentioning it to another guy, and then you know the anti-fluoride people just kind of ran with that. But yeah, or else or or the. Um, like the uh, like the like the Loch Ness monster and the UFO people and the uh, Bermuda Triangle people are really because really bad because they'll they'll yeah they'll just quote like another book, and then you go to that book and he's quoting another book, and you know you go and, to the, and, and, and what gets me I'm, and, and, I, I I try not to let the be resentful but what gets me is that these guys don't spend any time doing actual work yeah of well, investigation yeah you go you got to get to the primary sources yeah they, they just simply re brian dunning of course does a great job with this where he, he'll say you know his method is that when he reads about you know ufo crashed in texas and some date in the 19th century or something the first thing, question he'll ask is did, it, did it actually ever happen i mean he'll yes. go back and you know find the newspapers and who published them and what and th there's so little there there Exactly. When yeah. you actually look at the, you know, the the old ghost story or the old UFO story, the closer you get, the much less there is. In science, in true science, the closer you get, the more there is to see. Exactly. And, in the microscope. Yeah. And I I'll, I love Brian Dunning, but I mean, whatever you think about Brian Dunning, you know, with this and this and this, you know, the one thing Brian Dunning, I think, you know, if you think, oh, his politics informs his podcast too much, you know, just. But just listen to his method, and that's that's what's important. Brian Dunning, he he digs back to the primary sources, and then and then nine times out of ten, it's like he discovers, yeah, there's no there there that that this is just something that like twenty years after the fact, you know, just some oral tradition or something that people just started talking about, you know, and then this and and it and and that's I think one of the really great things that Brian Dunning I think has brought to sort of lay skepticism is, is yeah and, is... and i remember also um, there was a story i read once about a gentleman who was a reporter who had a massive archive about the kennedy assassination i mean he had like collected two hundred thousand documents and he, he he i i think he was a sort of semi-conspiracy theorist he thought there was more than one gunman mm -hmm. but he made this remark which i thought boy that really sums everything up he said that a lot of times conspiracy theorists will, will visit him and they sort of get bored and walk away after a very short time because they, they're hoping that like the, of the 200,000 documents, number two will mm -hmm. be Lyndon Johnson's <laughs> note to the Pentagon saying, why haven't we killed Kennedy yet? You know, and, 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 and they're not willing to do what, you know, historical researchers, the historical method 
if, if I'm doing a biography of the Marquis de Lafayette, mm -hmm. I have to go read everything he's ever written. I have to find every original source possible, or I would be laughed off the stage of history. In, in I, I couldn't just say, well, you know, I was sort of bo I got bored after the 900th letter yeah. to his wife, yeah. so I'm only going to re refer to the first 900. No, you got to read all 12,000 letters to his wife, right? right? Like you, that's what the you, historical method is. You didn't learn people, 19th century French to do your yeah, research, like you have, you have to know the stuff in. And you have to actually put in effort. And, and it really bothers me to see these people on television or podcasts or whatever. And they've obviously just baldly done no actual work, except, as you're saying, just quoting the old trite stuff that nobody did any work to uncover in the first place. Right. Yeah. I mean, as a, as, I mean, as an academic, you know, you have, you know, you have a wicked set of tools, right? You, you, you have, you have access to, you know, journals that the, so the lay skeptic doesn't have access to. And well, and... I have access to the most powerful tool in the world. It's called a doctoral student. <laughs> and, you know, I just, and because I pay this doctoral student and this doctoral student is trying to finish their study. No, I mean, like most professors, I'm very blessed. I have, I mean, I no longer have the time that I used to, but when I was a professor, I mean, let's face it, I, I part of my job at a research university, 40%, according to my allocation of effort, if we call it, was to do research. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, I think that's the best job in the world. It's 40% of your time is to investigate. And so, for example, uh, number of years ago, I wrote, a, I wrote a book, which actually was an updating of part of my dissertation. It was the uh, image in photos, uh, cartoons, maps, drawings of China in the American news press from 1949 to 1989. Mm -hmm. And I did not sample. I censused. I, sens I did a census, okay. which meant that I... I but this was before the internet, right? So I was able, and, and also at that time, television was really driven by newspapers. I mean, what, the headline of the newspaper was what was on TV last night. So I made a case that if I looked at Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, Washington Post, and New York Times, and I looked from 1949 to 1989, I would get a good view of the American view of China. Now, I didn't pick every 50th paper. I sat there in the library at LSU and a couple of other places. And I sat there and I flipped the New York Times for that entire period, looking right. for every picture of China. Right. Because I, I wanted to be absolutely thorough of doing a census, not, a, not a, a sample. Right. And so I don't, I, I, I think a lot of these people, these conspiracy theorists don't put in the work they don't put in the time. They don't put in the effort because why? They don't care. Yeah. They just like the, the the woo, the sensational outcome. It, it's hard. I mean, as they always say, science, real science is hard, and and you know the, the pseudoscience, they, they they don't they don't do the hard work, or you know, or to you know to be uh you know to be uh you know a, a real scientist, you have to be the the PhD student right you have to be doing this grunt work I mean um, Stuart Dr Stuart Robbins you know uh, uh, or my astronomer Royale I mean you know when you talk to him you know a lot of his sort of graduate work was just just drawing circles on craters and just you know night after night after night 
drawing circles on craters. And and now he's, you know, now he's working on the Pluto mission, right? And and that's, but, you know, he put in years of just semi-mindless grunt work, right? And yeah, yeah, and that you got to pay your dues, right? Yeah. Now, of course, I'm I'm never going to be one that says the only way to uncover knowledge is to be an academic. I mean, I love military history, and a lot of military history is written by independent scholars. You know, the they they write a book on the the uh, the Battle of Berlin or something like that, and no, they they're not a professor at a university, but boy, you know, you look and they they've got twelve thousand footnotes, and they they went through the art the German archives, and they went to the Russian archives, and they seem to have done a, a really thorough job. I. I admire people who have obviously done the work, and I resent it when it looks like somebody just, again, you know, pulled something out of an old barrel and said, here's my book, you know, right. from, and so many, so many, I mean, to me, that's one way to detect the conspiracy theory is that it's so lightweight. Right, right. In terms of actual content compared to a real thick book of history. You know, I mean, like, like physics professors, you know, you know, they get the cranks or like, you know, Einstein was wrong and, you know, read my, you know, you know, my, 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 my paper on why Einstein was wrong. And, and obviously, you know, biology professors probably get, you know, I can prove, you know, creationism and, and do you get, do you get the crank mail? No, unfortunately, I, I, mean, I hope now, right? Because I mean, your audience is what, 80% cranks, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean. You, you said that off. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, uh, no, I, I because I'm not really dealing with true conspiracy, I guess I'm, I don't okay. get a lot of oh, um, okay. uh, uh, mail. But one point you're making, which I think is, is a, a really crucial one, is that how is the ordinary person who, who obviously is not themselves putting in the time mm-hmm. to know the difference? Uh, Carl Sagan had a, a fascinating exercise when he had got a letter from somebody saying I'm in touch with space aliens. Mm-hmm. He had a pre-prepared response where he would write back and said that's amazing because they're obviously extremely technologically advanced. So here are t- 10 puzzling math and engineering problems that we face which I'd like them to solve. <laughs> well obviously there was not a follow-up uh, or the, the follow-up was no they really want to talk to us about the path of spiritual enlightenment. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, they they, ne- they never go to, uh, right, like Stephen Hawking or, uh, you know, Lawrence Krauss or, uh, you well, know. I'm sure they get a lot of mail. I'm yeah. sure they do. But isn't it interesting how no space alien has ever demonstrated any knowledge of math? Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. I mean, they travel apparently faster than light across the universe, but they don't know Calc 1. <laughs> that just... It, it defies credibility that there would not be this this kind of knowledge to, to share. And I thought that was a very, very uh, good response. Uh, Joe Nickel, you know, who, who no, you should yeah. have on the show sometime. I mean, he's he has been for uh, the skeptical inquirer for this, the um, skeptic uh, organizations, uh, Syscop, for many years, one of their investigators. And he made this point. He was he was reviewing a book a couple of years ago, and he was talking. It was a book on I, I think you know, a, um, alien replicants among us or something like that. And he was saying how how just unbelievably uncurious these people are. You know, like okay, you're saying 
a space alien came through your window and abducted you. Like, did you look at the paint on the window? You know, I mean, did you like scrape it and take it to a lab? Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and he was wearing a cardigan. And like, really? I mean, he or, aliens have an L.L. Bean catalog? And it just, just, just sort of ordinary police questions that you'd ask that they don't. But yeah, exactly. You know? Or it's like people, like people who, you know, have these close encounters with Bigfoot. It's like, okay. And then like, you didn't actually go back and, you know, in the, in the daylight and then go, well, you know, his fur must have been left on all kinds of trees as he crashed. You know, I'm going to go collect some fur samples. They, and, they, yeah, they, it, they never it, do that. And Bigfoot is sort of a favorite. I was a very gullible kid, by the way. I, I, I believed in everything because I thought it was all science. I yeah. mean, I, I actually was a member of a UFO believing club in, in high school. Oh, yeah. That, that's, we how we, just, that's how we got here, yeah. pretty much. Right? I think a lot of a yeah. lot of people who I guess would call ourselves spec skeptics now were people who were true believers. And at some point, you know, the, the God failed. And, and we realized, like, gee, you know, there's this doesn't. See, that's what I often talk to my students about, is that a lot of times, ridiculous beliefs, you, you almost don't have to investigate them because they, they fall apart on their own logic system. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if, you, if, if you look at the premises they make, the gaps between point A and point B are just so huge <laughs> that there's no point in leaping, going ahead and leaping, uh, one and and that that does make me sad i mean because as, again somebody who like thinks education is good I, by the way i used to think that was like not a controversial statement but uh once i wrote an op-ed for a newspaper saying education is good mm -hmm. and i got hate mail you know <laughs> which shows that anything you say will get uh hate mail nowadays we live in a world also which really troubles me where people are feel they can say anything under pseudonymity or anonymity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and th they say the most horrible hateful hurtful things under a pseudonym i mean some of them are not aware that as they find they will find out that if you, know, you actually make a threat uh the police can i mean it doesn't matter that you're you know kinky canadian guy 17 <laughs> they will track you down yeah yeah exactly it's not that hard most yeah. people don't cover. I mean, most people are, don't cover their. I mean, guys, people bombing airports in Brussels don't cover their tracks very well. Then certainly, you know, some idiot in uh, Toronto, you know, posting online crazy stuff is not going to cover their tracks right. that well either. Yeah, you know, I mean, as, you know, it was as a conspiracy skeptic, and one thing you're asked frequently, like, well, you know, what, what are some real conspiracies? And and. You know, one I would think I would point to more if I could even remember or pronounce her name was, um, uh, I believe it was during congressional hearings, you know, should we, should we, you know, in, invade Kuwait or send troops to Kuwait or, you know, retake Kuwait. And, um, and there was sort of a young, young woman who, who claimed to be a, a nurse in a preemie ward in, in Kuwait. And, and she described, you know, the Iraqi soldiers coming and taking back the, the um, the incubators and leaving the babies to sort of die on on the floor and um, and 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 um, you know to apply my own narrative fallacy that this that this testimony kind of really galvanized Congress and then shortly thereafter they they sort of all voted to you know to prove you know Desert Shield or Desert Storm 
and uh, and it tur- turned out she she was not actually a, a, a nurse in a preemie ward in Kuwait. She was like the I believe like the daughter of the ambassador of Kuwait in Washington D.C. or or someone who was the daughter of somebody at at the Kuwaiti embassy. And and does this, this is yeah. Well, Carl, this is a really important discussion because. Um... On the one hand, I do find it really problematic how people concoct conspiracies, don't do much work to investigate, and believe really just not credible material. On the other hand, governments do a terrible job of not uh, do. They do a terrible job of providing information that would head off the conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. and and. You know, yeah. just little stuff like it really I, – I, I don't understand why governments are so reluctant to release videos or release files or release information, especially like closed cold cases. And so you know, I can understand that people go like, well, how come they've never released the video of this? You know, mm-hmm. how come they've never released the, the photographs? And, and if somebody, again, who spent two years with the police department, I sort of get that stuff from the police point of view, but from the point of view of public relations and like heading off conspiracy theories. And, and then let's face it, governments lie. Mm-hmm. They do. Now, is that an actual conspiracy? I mean, first of all, that case, that was outed. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it worked temporarily, but it's not like. And, and by the way, it was outed and nobody was assassinated for outing. I mean, yeah, they, yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, George Bush, you know, the second did not like order 50 minions to go to that reporter's house yeah, and exactly. kill him. The, I mean, it's just yeah. the, not only was it outed, yeah. are, are pretty flimsy usually. Yeah. But not only was it apart. outed, nobody was assassinated, but no one, no one lost their job either. I mean, that just seems yeah. like that, that's almost blatant deception. And people are like, eh. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, I, 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 maybe I would be a conspiracy theorist if if I didn't if I wasn't a scientist because <laughs> there are I mean there are a lot of sort of badly done and I mean for example one of the things you learn when you flip through forty years of newspapers is how bad news is at reporting breaking news mm-hmm. yes, um, yes I like to tell my students that initial reports are always wrong. And I can give you any major news event of the last 40 years, and I can, we can sit there and flip the newspaper, watch the news video, and the initial reports are always wrong. Yeah. I've never seen a news event in my lifetime where the initial reports were correct. There's always, like, and 19 gunmen were seen running yeah. from the, the <laughs> yeah. premise, and, and one of them was eight foot two with bolts on his head. Human, as we know from Elizabeth Loftus and people like that who study witness, you know, that we're terrible. I mean, humans are just almost clueless in terms of remembering what happened, when, who did what, right? <laughs> and then the hearsay, um, I, I had a story published once, an editor and publisher, and it got mentioned on the reliable sources on Fox about, remember a, year, a couple of years, well, a number of years ago, there was a mine disaster in the United States, the Sejo mine. Oh, where right, there's yeah. miners trapped, yeah. and the news broke. The miners are okay; they're right. saved. Yay, yay! Miners saved. And it turned out that one reporter misheard somebody say something in the church, and immediately ran with it. And a mm-hmm. bunch of people ran. Miners saved. Well, they were dead. Yeah, they weren't saved. Yeah. And I, I said there should be a Pulitzer Prize for not running a story, <laughs> you know, for, for an editor going, "Whoa, stop! This is important." 
let's verify before we run this story. Right, yes, yes. Now, of course, we live in an age where speed is probably the only news value, trying to get something out. Uh, we live in an age of terrible inaccuracy in a business that wasn't very accurate to begin with. So look, you know, we're handing out gobs and gobs of evidence to the conspiracy theorists, so I can't blame them that much when they come up with this stuff because, yeah, you know, things are just wrong. I mean, they'll often say, like, after a shooting, they'll say, well, initial reports said that there were three gunmen. Well, every initial report yeah, that this yeah. says there are three gunmen. I don't, I've never heard of a single shooter mass killing that there wasn't initial reports that there were multiple gunmen. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the um, I forgot what I was going to say, but um, anything else you wanted you wanted to cover? Well, no, I just uh, I I think that all of us should, especially in this age, really spend extra time thinking about what we're told and shown. You know, I'm on Facebook. I love Facebook. I love keep, keeping up with my uh, former students. You know, it's a good way to keep, they're getting married or getting a job and doing something different. I, I like that. I, re, I read Facebook every day. And I'd say about once every two months I get hoaxed. Where <laughs> I will I will see, well, that's fascinating, and I'll repost it on Facebook. And the most recent one was, and I, I'm so embarrassed, somebody posted that Matt Damon is buying a house in Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> and again, no matter how many times I've trained myself, right. like, well, let's look into this. I just you know, hit the, re the share button and said, hey, everybody, look at this. You know, Lubbock is really coming up. I mean, yeah. it Damon? And, and it was a hoax. Oh. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah. I, and uh, I'll call Matt tonight to tell him that. I, no, but uh, that happens a lot to me. I think it happens a lot. We have to spend, in this age, where we're just inundated with false information. I mean, my God, Carl, we don't need conspiracy theories. We just have so much terrible, bad information out there. And it's very hard now to know what to believe. And so I think all of us have to just spend extra time thinking, looking for multiple sources of information, really considering what we know about, especially if we're going to do things like vote, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, based on that information a lot of times snopes.com is your friend yeah yeah and, and, they, and, and that's i mean i i've often sworn i mean i told the last time i was hoaxed i told my wife that okay that's it i will never post anything on facebook again unless i've gone to snopes first yeah it, but even i you know I'll, I'll just like well that's a great story about you know carl maber is you know being appointed by justin trudeau to be the minister of podcasting that's fantastic <laughs> There, right? I so wish, man. Yeah, just to, you know, it's like, you know, I used to have a job and then I got a position. Now I've got a career. And it's like, one day I, I just, I want an appointment. You know, that's the, that's the next evolution. Well, one of the stereotypes we have of Canada is like, you know, Canada is like 12 people. So, I mean, that everybody like personally knows each other, like, you know, the, your, your fourth cousin is probably the prime minister. So I, there, there are, there are like, Canada's population is what, about a million or so? That... <laughs> They're about 30 now. But 30, 30 million, it does, yeah. it does, yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and, and Canada is actually physically larger than the United States, right? Yeah, you take yeah. up more surface area than us. Yes, it's just yeah. mostly, but don't, don't most Canadians live within a hundred miles of the border? Yeah, we huddle along the border. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
but we're not letting you across, Carl. It's 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 it's, it's getting trickier. It's getting trickier. And when that wall goes up, it's going to be uh... the ice wall. Yeah, the ice wall. Yeah. <laughs> speaking speaking of the ice wall, just the uh, uh, you can also. Uh, do your research about you on YouTube. Someone's published, a, you were on a podcast talking about the political machinations in Game of Thrones. and. Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've done a, a podcast on Game of Thrones um, because I like to talk about poli- the, you know, political communication. And then I did one, that wonderful podcast, The Tolkien Professor. We had one oh, yes. about political communication in the Tolkien books. So, oh, okay. so I, 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 I really appreciate works of fiction where the authors have thought about politics mm, and, yeah. and imagery and, and, and George R. R. Martin, probably more than any fantasy author, he thinks really carefully about uh, politics and image and persuasion and political communication. I, I really appreciate in his books how he, uh, things just don't happen again. And actually it's a very good example because, you know, it seems like, you're, you're the ruler, but nothing you want to have happen actually happens the way you want it to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and these are kings with dragons and things. Yeah. I mean, you know, they still can't get anybody to do what they want them to do. It. I remember, I remember reading uh, George R. R. Martin's Sand Kings, like like year decades oh, yeah. ago. It would be decades ago now. Yeah, that's short. That's short story. Yeah. Sand King. yeah. Great, great short story. And it was just like you just read that and you're just like. Oh my God, that's just brilliant! And then I never thought of George R. R. Martin ever since. And then Game of Thrones happens, and I'm like I start like, who is this George R. R. Martin? Because I never read his books. I just started watching the TV show, and uh, and I'm like, oh, he's the dude that wrote Sand Kings. Like, you know, blow me away. Like, like, oh, you know, he just he just didn't come out of anywhere. He's he's like going back to that paying your dues. I mean, he's been. You know, he's been paying his dues since the, uh, you know, since the, like the 80s, at least. Well, I, that's a very good example. Kids, you know, listen to this. Yeah. It really helps to put in a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Do your work. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I think we live in an age where there's so many shortcuts out there that people don't think or, or they see success, but they don't see the effort to go there. I think the actor Bruce Willis once said, yeah, it was an overnight success after putting 15 years into it, you know. And, right. Um, Stephen King, the author, uh, apparently, I mean, I've never heard him say this, but apparently he, he will occasionally talk about writing, like at a workshop or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people will line up to hear him speak and and they'll ask you know you know what's the secret you know to mm-hmm. your your success i mean how how did you train to be such a successful author and i think he said that no one has ever followed his formula ever no. and his formula <laughs> was practice yeah. <laughs> like right, right. He, said, he said like um pick a famous book like moby dick mm-hmm. and from memory write your own version hmm. to practice the craft of storytelling right yeah and it and, and the way he put it was so clever. He said it's clear. He he said, when talking to audiences of would be, would bees, it was clear everybody in the audience wanted to be an author. Just nobody really wanted to write. Right. You know? yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, the uh, you know the, um, when you're talking about your, uh, you're researching a topic and you're like just literally reading back issues of Time magazine and you know, just sort of methodically. And, and I'm, I'm one of those weirdos. Like I like, I just like, 
you know, Google Books is great because you can find like back issues, like you can find like back issues of Spy Magazine from the 80s. And and the things they say about Donald Trump and Spy Magazine from the 80s, it's 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 hilarious. But but when when you start to like when you read like Time Magazines from the 70s or, uh, you know, even Mad Magazine from like the 70s, you, 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 you go, wow, all the things we are talking about today and complaining about and, you know, the middle class, we can't get ahead, are the exact same things that people are talking about in the 70s and probably in the 60s. And uh, did, you, did you kind of stumble on this yourself? Well, what I found remarkable, uh, and I guess this is an indictment of journalism, is how often you would be reading in one issue predictions, mm-hmm. like, like analysis, and then two months later, the events would actually occur, and they were wrong. But they would never... And I, I give you, I, I, as I said, I wrote a book about America and China and, and how America saw China. Um, I guess this is a conspiracy theory, my own conspiracy theory. I believe to some extent that Time Magazine was responsible for the Korean War. Okay. <laughs> okay, now listen to my conspiracy here, Carl. Um, well, the so, Sp- Spanish-American War yeah, was kind of the product of... Uh, yeah, yeah, but but this was sort of indirect. Time Magazine was owned by Henry Luce. Okay. You know? And Henry Luce was was a, was a son of China missionaries. He really cared about China. So if you read Time magazine, there was a lot of China news, right? Okay. So independently, I found out, and this is Chinese scholars have written about this, that the, the Mao and his government were mostly, mostly composed of people who had no experience abroad. Mm-hmm. They were not international type folks. Most of them didn't speak any language except uh, a variation of, of Chinese. And they did, China did not have a spy. I mean, Russia did, but Russia didn't share any information with China. So China did not have a spy network in the United States, didn't even have an ambassador. <laughs> so how did China ever find out what was going on in America? Well, they, they through Hong Kong, they subscribed to Time magazine. Yes, <laughs> news. Yes. And they, like a lot of people who run dictatorships, they did not understand that what was printed in the newspaper was not necessarily the official policy of the government. Right, right. So... There's a wonderful map I have that was printed shortly before the Korean War, which shows the east, uh, the eastern uh, defense perimeter against communism. And it showed this sort of graphic of a fortress against communism, China and Russia. But the apex of the fortress was Taiwan, which Henry Luce really cared about, the <laughs> Chiang Kai-shek government that fled to Taiwan. Korea was not within the fortress, right? Right, right. And, and so I, I, it's purely inferential, but if you read American news magazines before Chinese intervention, before the, the, the North Koreans, Koreans attacked and before the Chinese intervention, which we ignored every sign that the Chinese were going to intervene and still you know, set ourselves up for disaster there, uh, we were basically telling Mao through our publications that, well, don't touch Taiwan, but Korea's okay. Mm, right, yes, yes. And again, they had no other sort. They couldn't like call on the phone like the President of the United States and just say, look, I'm just checking with you here. If we, if we attack Korea, South Korea, is that okay with you? I mean, there was no, there was no mechanism for that. Right, we yes. weren't talking to them. Right, yes. Uh, I mean, they sent some indirect, but but as you know, in the Korean War, as the American army, the UN army was marching north, 
the, the Chinese kept sending signals like through India and other channels saying, um, you're getting close to our border. <laughs> Don't do that. Right. right and right. MacArthur and, and the generals and, and, and the American leadership basically ignored all that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there are conspiracies of ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's There's a better way to describe of, it. Yes. Of, of uh, incompetence. I mean, that's something else you discover in any organization is just ignorance and and incompetence that deals with 99 percent of strange events and then the 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 efforts to to cover up your ignorance and incompetence when when that's right when when crap happens right yes yeah 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 i mean it sort of seems that like maybe america couldn't talk to china at one point because i mean to talk to them would be to recognize them as a country and i think for quite a long time america just saw taiwan as that that's china right so yeah, that was that was uh, quite some time, really, until Nixon, you know, the conservative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Nixon, yeah. Nixon goes to China. And... So I appreciate the time, Carl. Yeah, I, I'm yes, I should let you go. Yeah. Show, uh, and but I, I do think that we're on the same page and that I encourage anyone. You don't have to have a university degree to do research, but you should really ask questions about what constitutes true evidence. Mm-hmm. for something and your uncle told you it on thursday may or may not be yes. <laughs> very useful as a source of evidence and so i i i, I i'm very unhappy about the state of journalistic research historical research scientific research in the public sphere mm-hmm. you know in the public mind right yeah and i hope that we're you know, later on we'll enter an era where we're a little bit more rigorous. Yeah. Well, I I, I like I like to think that's gonna happen. So like the, uh, you know, like that. So the 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 anti-vax, um, you know, it it the public opinion seems to have really turned. You know, that people who are anti-vax now are kind of just I, I see them roundly being mocked by everybody now versus where they're just kind of considered like, ooh, you are a very savvy, astute, you know, skeptic of the medical establishment and. I know. I'm hopeful. You could afford to be, Carl. <laughs> I'm You're here, Canadian. I know, I know. I'm up here in safe, safe, sane Canada. <laughs> but uh, all right then. Okay, I'll let you go. Uh, just, I, I, if uh, you are ever at a uh, conference or something where there are potentially conspiracy skeptic listeners and someone says, hey, I loved your appearance on Conspiracy Skeptic. Can I buy you a drink? What would what What, what are you drinking? Um, I drink water. Oh, just water. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I. I... Sorry, I'm I'm a pretty boring person. Oh, so okay. I, yeah. You, yeah. You're an anomaly it, there in West Texas, then. Uh, I don't know that. I mean, uh, West Texas. I guess, uh, uh, as you might imagine, uh, beer and and whiskey are are, yeah. are pretty pretty popular. Um, uh, well, but we have wineries. It's it's actually a pretty good uh, wine country. That we've quite a number of winery. In, in Texas in general, so right. uh, okay. but I don't I don't uh, drink alcohol, but there's there's good stuff. Uh, you you must you know like all Canadians, you must come visit West Texas. I will uh, be very happy to uh, host you here, and uh, we'll take you out to the range to shoot. And, uh, <laughs> I can set up a you know a good horse ride and and maybe some uh, bull bronking and all the good stuff. Right. Just can, can you can you disabuse me of, of uh, something I, I've long thought of Texas? I, I, I have this impression that Texas doesn't have weather, but when it does, it's weather that kills people. Is it, how, how accurate is that? 
Well, actually, I've only lived here in Texas for three years, and I truly love it. They're very good people. I don't think there's – we have a Norwegian student at our school, and he told me that in Norway the word Texas is a synonym for crazy. Like, you know, like, <laughs> or like you're going Texas is like you're crazy. And I asked him more about that, and I think he explained, well, sort of like that you're really like um, – uh, over the top, but but not. He said it's not it's not as bad as it sounds. Right, like right. like you know you're you're bigger than life, which I think right. has been the way that Texas is thought of. Because boy, you live here in Lubbock, for example. We're closer to Denver than Dallas because mm. Texas is so huge. Uh, in um, to, to an American, to an American. Yeah, yeah. To, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's as huge as you know Alberta, but no. but it's it's yeah. big. Uh, so, it, it's an American state. And so, yeah, we have in West Texas, because we're sort of, a, we're an arid region, like today we had a very strong wind. We tend to have very strong winds, and every once in a while, I have not, for some reason, I've never been in town when this happened, but there have been these sort of blackout winds where the dust is so thick, oh, it, wow. it's, it, it's taken from the, the, from the, the Sahara, the, the Haboob, you know, where it's just okay. almost dark. Now, I, I, I've not been here when one has happened, so it's not like they happen every day. But uh, yeah, and we've had we had a snowstorm. We had a snowstorm in Lubbock, Carl, uh, over Ooh. Christmas, Ooh. Uh, and uh, we we found out that Lubbock has two plows, <laughs> and we're a city of three hundred thousand, and we had two plows, and so. But but you know, this is Texas, so everybody seemed to have had a cousin who was a contractor or a house builder or a farmer so all these tractors showed up yeah <laughs> all over Lubbock just ordinary people yeah. uh, digging themselves out and I really was very proud of my Texas neighbors that that and, and and people had no snow shovels so they were digging their driveway with like ordinary <laughs> dirt shovels but they did it and they didn't like you know demand the government to come in and save them so they're 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 an independent lot, and I admire them very much. And so you should come visit us and disabuse yourself of any I, uh, notions about Texas. I would be very happy to come to Texas and visit you sometime. Yes. And I, and as long as I'm not killed by a polar bear, I would like to visit you as well. Because I mean, I I know polar bears pick off like thousands of Canadians every. Oh, every yeah, day. exactly. You uh, yeah yeah you. It, I believe they're. Northern Manitoba, it's kind of it's encouraged to leave your car doors unlocked at night. So it, it, if you are ever being chased by a polar bear, you can just run to the nearest car and jump in that car, knowing that the door will be open. See, see that what a great combination of stereotypes. Like Canadians are basically honest and nice. <laughs> that it's okay to leave your car open, but also you're going to be chased by a polar bear. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's but just, like wonderful. Check check the boxes of stereotypes. Okay, right the push and pull. All right. Well, I will, I will let you go. Thank thank you for uh, and I, I I I will say you're the first guest I have ever had that uh, had an assistant kind of arrange <laughs> arrange this interview. That, that that's impressive. Oh, thank thank you. I'll tell I'll tell her that. <laughs> yeah, I was very impressed by that. Okay. And, and your your assistant is what one years old I think or uh, my my girlfriend has a has a five year old. Yeah yeah. Okay, five year old. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much, Carl. Uh, enjoy your show and look forward to listening to future podcasts. Great. Great. Okay. Okay. Have a good night then. Take care, sir. All right. Bye-bye. I used to wake up in the morning. I used to feel so bad. I got so sick of having sleepless nights. I went and told my dad. He said, son, now here's some little something. 
Of Lily 